You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly show with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gartner designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is part two of our episode number 200, which was recorded live. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, then just skip back in your podcast player. This is also available as a video on our homepage show. So just go over to theeffectivestatistician.com and find episode 200 there. Have fun with the next couple of guests of this episode. Rapid fire, 10 minutes per guest. And with that, we move over to Steve Pike. How are you doing? Hi, Alex. Yeah, good, thank you. I, I will just say, having listened to the other speakers already, um, this is like going to one of those restaurants where they have a tasting menu. You get a little taste of very different, each very exquisite little pieces. And uh, I must say, I'm going to follow up on some of these uh, speakers I've heard about already today. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, hopefully uh, others will kind of get a inspiration of all the different podcast episodes that are out there um i calculated you can now spend actually a couple of days uh <laughs> listening to the podcast uh uninterruptedly but um yeah maybe you can just pick out a couple of these um yeah don't, don't forget to eat and to sleep while, while while listening to the podcast you need to take a sabbatical um, for for doing the podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um you recently had an interesting change uh something that i did as well i changed from a pharma company into a cro and you did the same tell us a little bit about this and what what drove this change yeah, and what I, do you hope to get out of the CRO uh, yeah, business? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it's probably fair to say it's a bigger change than I expected in, in some respects. But I wish, you know, re reflecting back to what Diana and uh, Ian were saying earlier, you know, I, I can't honestly say this was part of my big plan for the rest of my career. It was more accident than uh, design, I would say. But I, but I will say there were three ingredients. And I think, again, very much resonating with what Diana particularly said earlier. Firstly, it was, it was an interesting looking job. So the company I'm now with, Paracel, they were looking to really uh, build on the foundations they've made around the way they use data. So real world data, clinical data, everyone's talking about data these days and, and the technology and, and the analytics that go with it in order to uh, realize the value from that data. So this is not a new idea. But I think uh, as it was presented to me, this looked like a job which would allow me to take something and really accelerate it. So that was kind of exciting in itself. Um, I think the second ingredient was the manager. Uh, and my, my now manager was someone that I'd known, if you like, from the other side of the table. So when I'd been in a pharma company purchasing uh, CRO services, I'd had the chance to meet this guy. And honestly, for those of you who've been working more than a few years, I think you'll all appreciate the importance of a good good manager. I knew Sai was a good guy. I had a lot of respect for him as a scientist, as a medic, and I was pretty confident that I could work for him and enjoy it. Um, and then the third ingredient, I think, was the opportunity for growth. 
for learning, for development. And, and although I'm, what, 25 years now into my career as in pharma, um, and I've worked alongside a lot of really good people, I've learned an awful lot, uh, particularly from people in other disciplines, actually. And for those who don't know me well, I'm a statistician by training. I've spent most of my career as a statistician. But it's learning from people in other disciplines that really helps you be a good drug developer. And in the end, for those of us who've been in the pharma sector for more than a short period, you realize quickly it's about drug development fundamentally. That's what we're employed for. We bring technical competence, but we are developing drugs. And, uh, and in this job in particular, you know, it was, there was clearly an organization with smart people, with uh, a passion like myself for developing medicines. And actually, I like the culture a lot. And as I was meeting the leaders of the organization, the culture felt good. It was surprising to me, actually embarrassingly so, to, to hear just how focused they were on patients, just in the way that when I was in pharma, we talked about the patients and the medicines that, that, that we were delivering for them. So probably, as I said, uh, accidentally, I find myself in the CRO. But the ingredients looked right. And now that I'm inside it, actually, I find a company which is you know, a really enjoyable place to be. It's a sector which I think is doing a lot to contribute to the development and discovery of new medicines. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I would recommend it as much to anyone as I would the pharma sector, which I've enjoyed equally. So Alexander, is it the same for you? Yep, yep, it is the same for me. However, for me, it wasn't so much of an accident. It, uh, it was very, very intentional. Um, I had built teams in two pharma companies around uh, the post-regulatory uh, world. And um, I really wanted to help not just one company, but many companies. And the only area where you can really do this is from a zero perspective, because then you have the freedom to really work with, with everybody and, and drive things forward across the industry. And so that was one of my main uh, reasons for changing. Um, there's actually not a full episode about this and my, my considerations coming up next year. I have already recorded it, uh, like so many others, but uh, this, is, this is coming next year. Um, Steve, you have a really uh, interesting title, and there's one word that I stepped over, digital. It's a big buzzword uh, within our industry. Um, what does it mean to you? It's, it's a great question. And, and, a, and a, a, just a, a small meander, if I may. When, when I was uh, joining Paraxel and talking with my new boss about what to call the group, um, we had some names for the group which had more buzzwords than you could shake a stick at, honestly. <laughs> um, in fact, it got to the point where I'm thinking, you cannot say the name of this group without drawing breath. That's a problem. <laughs> So, um, but anyway, back to your question, what does digital mean? I, I, I tend to see it in a way as part of a triumvirate, um, particularly in our sector. I think of digital data and analytics as sort of the three legs of the stool that allow what we want to do to happen. And by which I mean, you know, if you like the data is where you begin. Data is uh, in the healthcare set setting in our clinical studies, there's a lot of data around and a lot of potential use cases for it. And we know over the last several years, there's been a lot of work done to 
standardize it, to aggregate it, to make it more accessible. The digital piece then for me is the technology and the software, the hardware and the software that, that bring together the means by which we can then access that data, ingest it, aggregate it, link it, store it, uh, and then interrogate it ultimately. And then that's the analytics piece, which is about really understanding what is the data telling us? Where is the value and how do we realize the value of that data? So, so I think when I talk about digital, it's, if you like, it's, it's sort of shorthand for me for the, the technology and the software. Um, and I suppose the, the thing I would sort of say just a little bit further on that then is, so what is good digital? You know, what makes it digital? What, is, what makes the technology helpful or unhelpful? And, and what makes it useful for us. And I think it's really predicated on the notion that it allows us to do things quickly, almost in real time, if possible, that it is, you've architected your technology in such a way that you're not tied to a rebuild of the technology every time you want a new application. Um, so it has to be in some degree future-proofed the sort of plug and play mentality, the iPhone, if you like, which we're all used to working with. In the data space, good digital means something like the flexibility, the ease of use, the adaptability, the, um, the future-proofing, the, the technologies that we live with in our home offer, they need to be available for us in the office. And I think increasingly that's possible. So, you know, digital is coming alive and is becoming meaningful in a way that I think for a long time, it's really been an ideal which we never achieved. It's definitely moving forward in a, in a very helpful way now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, digital is uh, also a big word beyond, you know, all the clinical development. Yeah, there's lots of things happening in terms of e-commerce and uh, social media and emails and all these kind of different things where in the, you know, if you look back 20 years ago, it was mostly about face-to-face um, -face interactions between uh, sales reps and, uh, you know, people from healthcare providers. And now it's much more about really kind of emails, webinars, and these, these other digital tools. And, and, so, I think um, and in a way, I'd be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity just to, to point out what, well, I think, again, we already know, we all here know, this audience knows for sure, AI, ML, uh, natural language processing, these things are more than words now. They are reality. You know, the, the, we, when we come into the office, when we, the, the tools we use in our home, they use these almost ubiquitously. And I think there's massive untapped opportunity through allying thoughtful use of those mechanisms with data, with digital. Um, and that's why I think this is so exciting. Even a man of my age can genuinely be excited about the opportunity this creates for us and for our industry. Yep, yep. And Sam touched on, you know, these opportunities in terms of uh, technology earlier already. Yeah. Yeah, so um, let's not just leave it to the kids. We've all, we, we can all do something with this. Thanks so much, uh, Steve, for coming to the call um, and uh, sharing your thoughts on here. So maybe we can chat a little bit longer about these kind of things uh, in an upcoming episode uh, next year. I'd love to do that. With Thanks. that, um, I, we are moving over to the next guest. Uh, 
Uh, it's really, really fast turning and lots of different opportunities to talk about. Now we are talking again about something more methodological. Uh, hi, Daniel, how are you doing? Hi, good morning, good afternoon. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing good, thanks. How are you? Very good. We actually talked about uh, this thing earlier today already uh, about uh, matching adjusted indirect comparisons. And um, quite some time ago when we did the podcast episode, it was something much more kind of new. Uh, there were, you know, a couple of examples out there. Um, but nowadays it is nearly mainstream, I would say, especially as it has um, now its place in the guidelines, a nice guideline. So... Um, Daniel, that's that's quite an achievement for for such such a method to get into you know a guideline that is relevant for payers uh, in the UK and mm -hmm. surely beyond the UK because many of other payers look into kind of these guidelines. Um, what are kind of your key takeaways from this guideline? Yeah, uh, thank you. I think this this was a fair summary of of the of the method, so the so-called matching adjusted indirect comparison. So we already talked about uh, uh, software and visualization. So today I came up with pen and paper, <laughs> just to to bring us uh, all on the same page, so to say. So this is basically the the situation um, we are talking about. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's it's all about indirect comparison. So in in the case you don't have head-to-head -head data at hand yeah so so imagine uh, you have maybe one or two studies uh, which compare treatment a to c and then maybe you have another study which compares uh, the same treatment c but with another treatment b and you are actually interested in the comparison of a versus b and yeah so the gold standard as we all know is do a randomized controlled clinical trial but in many cases, and due to many reasons, this is um, most often not, not feasible. But in this case, uh, statistics can, can help. Um, and I think one example, which is really quite popular, is the so-called yeah, Bucher approach, which, so to say, yeah, just um, uh, compares the uh, differences of the treatment effects of A versus C to B versus C. And... Um, in some cases, and I think this is one reason why we have this method now in the NICE guideline, uh, you um, observe some differences in the baseline characteristics across trials. So, for example, um, you have a, a mean age of 40 in, in one trial, and in the other trial, you have a mean age of 50. And you know from your medical colleagues that age is a, has an effect of how effective the treatments are. Then the yeah, classic adjusted indirect comparison or the Bucher method, this will uh, probably um, yeah, result in, in biased results, so to say. And then I think six or seven years ago, um, the, the matching adjusted indirect comparison method has been published, I think, in, in oncology first. And uh, now, as Alexander mentioned, uh, it has made its way into the nice technical document. It's uh, document number 18 for those of you who want to take a, a closer look. And um, yeah, I think it's it's really a great method. Um, so like all statistical methods, it has uh, pros and cons, but uh, really for the case that you really need to compare two treatments where you don't have data at hand, 
and where you know that the patients in both uh, on both sides differ in important characteristics, which um, yeah, definitely uh, or may bias um, the results. Then I think this method um, is really a, a good alternative uh, to the Bucher one and a good addition, for example, to to a network meta analysis. Yeah, and uh, so Alexander, you mentioned that uh, this method now is implemented in NICE. So it's, uh, and uh, when you look to this technical su uh, support document, uh, you can really identify a couple of situations where NICE um, agrees to submit uh, this kind uh, of, of method, yeah. And um, first of all, it's, uh, or the basic message really is, uh, you, can, you can do it, uh, um, you're allowed to, to, to submit it. And uh, the second method really then is um, if you really can build up some kind of this network, then use it. Yeah, don't do any unanchored comparison, just A versus B, but make use of this common comparator C in this case here. This is really the other message. And uh, and then the it's really all about uh, the um, identification of so-called treatment effect modifier. So these are just baseline characteristics where you know that, as I said, uh, they can influence the effectiveness or safety of your, of your treatment. And this is really where you need to put a lot of work into when you want to apply this method. I think from a technical side, uh, um, uh, this is all um, uh, straightforward. Uh, um, even the code is 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 available on, uh, on the nice web page, uh, but you really need to work uh, um, on the understanding of the treatment effect modifier. So, for example, um, um, if you know or if you guess that, for example, age has an influence, yeah, you need to work closely with your medical colleagues. You you uh, uh, you need to look into medical guidelines um, if this. Um, characteristics um, is really identified as an important important treatment effect modifier, and then uh, you also need to show it uh, from a statistic, statistical point of 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 sight. Yeah. So, for example, you need to show um, um, that this or that that the change in the age has really an impact on the effectiveness. Yeah, and for example, there, there's no gold standard yet for both for the for the medical and for the statistical evaluation, so to say. Um, but for example, you can apply some some kind of regression models. Yeah, you can investigate your own data to see which impact has has age, for example, and then put this uh, together with your medical findings, and then uh, yeah, put together the statement that this is a treatment effect modifier, and uh, then you can and need to adjust for this within your indirect comparison. And this is then when this method uh, comes alive, so to say. Yeah, that is a really important thing to, to have in mind. Um, doing a thorough review of what are the covariates you need to adjust for mm -hmm. to get a as unbiased estimate as, as possible. Mm -hmm. um, the... Uh, flip side of it, it is um, you, the more you adjust, mm -hmm. the more potentially you lose the effective sample size. And mm -hmm. so um, it really makes sense to only adjust for those where you need to adjust and mm -hmm. not just kind of throw in uh, 
all the things that you that you have collected uh, because exactly. yeah. that can have a negative impact. So thanks so much, Daniel. That was a really really uh, nice summary of uh, the guideline, and it's it's a really relevant one. With mm -hmm. that, let's move over to the next guest. And um, for this episode, I didn't only want to have, you know, previous guests. I also wanted to have some listeners, some uh, longtime listeners that um, have uh, provided me with some feedback. And so here I'm really happy to have Chris Miller, um, who I recently met virtually and was really happy to hear that uh, he's a listener of the of this podcast. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Hi, Alexander. Doing fantastic. Great to have you on the show. Um, since when have you been listening to the Effective Statistician? So I came across the podcast probably about three years ago. And I've got to say, since the pandemic, I started really kind of upping my listening hours as a way to kind of connect with our community, which has been, you know, almost solely virtual for the, the last year and a half, two years. That's interesting. It's actually against the trend. Most of the podcasts have actually decreasing numbers through the pandemic, I think, because people were not commuting anymore. And <laughs> that's probably one of the main you know, times where, where people uh, listen to podcasts. Um, same for me, uh, besides kind of running and exercising, as I think the other area. Um, what are kind of your most favorite episodes that you have listened to? Yeah, so um, I think you and I have a, a common interest and probably a common interest among a lot of us on today's call is how do we as statisticians develop ourselves as drug developers and influence the organization? Uh, so, so I'm really drawn to the podcasts that talk about uh, career development, taking a risk, getting outside our comfort zone, Uh, there are a number of podcasts around how do introverts influence and uh, also ones around how do you make a career change? How do you do something that's uncomfortable? And again, I think about this a lot, especially in the context of the pandemic, where some of our natural organic ways of interacting with people, you know, sitting around the table at a study team meeting are a bit different now. They're so staged, so orchestrated that some of the techniques I used to use and I used to encourage around, you know, as you're leaving a meeting, have a one-on-one -on -one with someone at the coffee machine in between meetings, get to know them a little bit, ask about your weekend. All those things have intangible benefits around building your network that make it more comfortable for folks to approach you later on and say, hey, Chris, I wanted to ask you a question about such and such that you said during the meeting. You know, now that most of us have not been able to do that so much, it's like you have your Zoom call, that's over, you go to your next Zoom call. There's no two minutes in between meetings. So, yeah, so, so I've, I've been listening to the podcasts around influencing with that in mind around, we need to have more tools. We need to know of more techniques. And I love hearing about other people's experiences of challenges they've faced and little things they've done to overcome them. So what is your 
technique now that you don't have this kind of coffee machine um, interactions anymore where you walk out of a meeting and you both walk to the coffee machine and during that kind of better relate to people. Yeah, and so at AstraZeneca, we've been kind of dipping our toes back into the water of returning to site. And my, my personal technique is I'm, I'm coming in every day. So I've discovered I've, I really miss it. And it's kind of validating my hypothesis that those unplanned kind of organic interactions are really valuable. So, uh, you know, you're running into someone at the coffee machine in the staircase. Um, you know, other techniques I've, I've used is I've purposefully put in time in my weekly calendar for networking. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's tough, and it's kind of tough to give that as adv advice because I recognize that if you're in a more senior role, that's maybe easier to do than if you're just starting off. You're very junior, you know. It, it takes some courage to just you know put five minutes on someone else's calendar to say, "I just want to say hi. I just want to kind of talk." Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think there's also the opportunity to just you know reach out to people um, via, you know, the chat and other things. And um, uh, at, at Veromet, we use Google for that. And then you can just drop in even a meeting into, into the chat and, and go from there. Um, I've used similar techniques, you know, also with, with the Windows equivalent. So that's, that's possible as well. Um, Sam, what are your thoughts? Well, I found that I struggle a bit with that too, where I've worked from home for a long time, so I've been isolated from a lot of the other people that I work with. And being the face-to-face -face communication can be really key where you have those opportunities to do that. But how do you get past now the fact that a lot of people just maybe aren't even going to come back to the office? Um, I, you know, I, I, I have some ideas on that, but I wonder what you think, Chris, like for people who just really aren't going to be in the office that much, how do you have those informal conversations that help develop relationships and let you learn things that you wouldn't learn in a more structured meeting? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I'm not sure I have the perfect answer other than agreeing with you. It's it's important. So we need to figure out how we, we work that into our schedule. I don't want us to become you know solely task-oriented. Mm -hmm. I sort of reflect back on my first job in industry and one of my key members of my, my network to this day, so 30 years later, is somebody I never worked on the same project with. I knew him because we sat next to each other on the floor plate and we'd kind of you know, overhear a little bit of each other's conversations and say, oh, that was interesting because I'm working on a similar project. How are you approaching it? And then you know, we became friends, we became colleagues. And I'm thinking, it's like, would I have even known him in a solely virtual world. So I, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't have even known to schedule a networking appointment with him. And even if I did, it would have been kind of, kind of weird out of the blue to say, hey, let's, let's have a meeting. Yeah, so I, I, just, I wonder if we need um, to consciously think of how we're going to approach that as, as a discipline going forward. That, uh, and I worry about the risk if we don't, right? Because if, if we don't, I worry we can regress 20 years back to being, oh, you're, you're the numbers people, you know, you're, you kind of yeah. deliver the TLFs and, uh, you know, do 
give us the sample size and, and we kind of regress a bit in how we've achieved the role of, of kind of drug developers. Mm-hmm. Yep, I completely agree. What is interesting is that it's now much more easier to connect with people via, for example, LinkedIn. So um, I've made several collections to, to people via LinkedIn over, especially kind of the last year, where I you know, commented on people's uh, posts and then went a little bit backwards and forwards, we, we connected. And that even led to some podcast episodes. So um, I think that is, you know, the, the thing you need to be open to it. As you said, you know, step outside of your comfort zone and contact people despite might, you know, being a little bit awkward at the beginning. But if you have a similar interest and you really care about the other person and not just kind of pitch some kind of product, uh, then I think that can lead to quite, quite nice results. Yeah, and I think you can also do it a little bit more with written communication. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we used to get a lot of written communication, letters, memos, memos done on typewriters, not on computers. <laughs> um, and, and that worked back then. It worked back then. And I, what, but what I find now is with the um, written communication now, it's very instant, right? You can send a text message. You can get on Teams or, or um, whatever messaging app you have and send a quick message. And what you have to be comfortable with is sort of that asynchronous back and forth. Like I may send a message and that person may not respond right away, right? So it's like a little short letter that I put into the post into the mail, but I need to wait until they're ready to respond. And I think you also have to maybe be a little bit more courteous too, because it's really easy just to be very short, mm-hmm. send like these short sentences that don't even have a complete sentence structure. And I think you have to write better when you send these messages to convey not just the information, but also the emotion, the consideration and kindness behind the message has to be, there has to be more words there to, to do that. Oh, emojis. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. Great, great to have you on, on the show again. And, and thanks uh, for, you know, following the show for, for so long and um, for being here uh, a guest today. Um, all the best for your further career and um, pretty sure we'll, we'll connect again. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Alexander. Be well. Bye, everybody. As we were just talking about the pandemic, um, there's now two guests coming on the show, um, Emma and Matt. And that is a really, really interesting thing because um, as you if you're online now, you can see uh, Emma is with her kid there. So that is kind of really kind of the <laughs> one of the things that we really learned through the pandemic that it's, you know, we are much more kind of getting into the private lives of people, the, you know, the back, uh, back end. Uh, her son is not doing well today. So uh, she's taking care. Hi, Matt, Emma, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Alexander. Nice to see you. Uh, <laughs> that was little Harvey. Great to hear him as well. 
Yeah, poor little Harvey's just been for a COVID test. But there you go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. like this, this just marks, this, this is just indicative of my whole pandemic experience. <laughs> <laughs> that is really so, so cute. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, it's, I think that really speaks to what we wanted to shortly talk about because um, when we recorded our episode, it was live. No, it was not live. It was face to face in the uh, in the office in Twickenham, uh, and shortly thereafter, the pandemic hit, and um, you were yeah, asked to run your company uh, through this pandemic. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how that experience was. Yeah, sure. It sounds. Like, I mean, I remember you coming in actually, and we didn't know whether we should shake hands or not. I think it was February. 2020 wasn't it around then yeah yeah um but, but what i'd say is it's been hard work uh the last 18 months but it's also been quite re rewarding as well um i mean as a business we were quite fortunate some businesses have had a horrible time but we were luckily one of the ones that didn't have too much of an impact in terms of loss of revenue so maybe a bit of a dip at the start but you know we were lucky that it wasn't significant um And so I suppose in terms of what we what we needed to do and what we've kind of learned is we realized very quickly that we needed to be agile and adapt quickly. And one of my favorite photos from the company history is people walking out of the door with uh, laptops and screens and chairs um, as we closed the offices. And we just said, well, you need to be able to work from home. And that was our first step in adapting. It was just take what you need, you know, no approvals process, just you know, people were looting the office. It was great. Um, <laughs> but then it kind of, you know, went on from there and we, we started to think very quickly about what we needed to do because we'd been predominantly an office-based business. You know, what did we need to do to adapt to this new way of working, of working from home? So, so what's within our control? So we, we thought well, communication is everything. So we started some things. And a lot of the things actually that we've started, we've kept because we've realized, you know, even though people are now back in the office um, to a degree, uh, but things like daily stand-up meetings, we put those in place on projects and people who were previously remote workers were saying to us, we've never felt so engaged as we have now. You know, this is the pandemic and everyone's remote, but it's because we were then having kind of daily communication with everyone. Um, we started having all staff meetings every two weeks and producing newsletters and having more social events and probably, you know, doing all the things that we probably should have, well, we thought we were doing beforehand, but we didn't realize that we could take it on a, you know, a margin further. So we started doing all of those things and actually, you know, we've seen a lot of positive that's actually come from that as a business. But of course, of course there have also been challenges. Um, I don't know, Emma, if you want to speak to the, the childcare challenges. Well, one of the, the challenges of working with your other half in the same company, let alone running a business, is you're often in the same meeting at the same time. So we've had Batman joining us um, and uh, we've had to adapt. But I guess I think many people have found themselves in the same position. So actually, um, a lot of people are, are very accommodating and accepting of that and also just the, the flexibility to be sending emails outside of you know normal working hours um, I think that has become a lot more 
of the, the norm. Um, and it, it's very heartwarming, I guess. Yep, yeah, yeah. And it shows much more kind of the, the people behind the, you know, the, the titles and the business. And it shows kind of we are all struggling with the similar things. Um, I think Benjamin probably with his four kids can also tell some stories about that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've realized my ability to hold a conversation um, and do a few other things like building a digger at the same time. I, you know, I've definitely uh, learned new skills in the last 18 months. Yeah, and you don't even need, need to be in the same company. So you just have to have a husband or wife who's working at the same time. And it's, you know, I don't know how many, how many, Meetings, I my kids spoiled, you know, with uh, running into this and and jumping on my chair and stuff like this. So that's, well, what is the, <clears throat> well, what is your, well, I mean, I wouldn't say takeaway because it's not over yet, but what is the the aim of you know getting the advantages and disadvantages of, um, you know, what what the the COVID time taught us in terms of flexibility of working i mean obviously you know I, I i suppose you cut down travel expenses as every company so yeah. what, what is the what is the takeaway or might be the takeaway from after you know these two years of forced um you know home-based working i mean that's a really good question i think that um for us you know we've talked about some of the communication stuff that is definitely here to stay um, i think that's been so positive for us we've also though had to you know, be mindful of other other challenges um, and the things that you don't necessarily see if people are at home. So um, mental health challenges, we've done what we can to kind of support there in terms of um, external support and um, increased contact and, and burnout as well. You, you've got to be mindful of that because, um, you know, you've, I like working hard. I don't mind working hard. That's fine. Um, but you know, you can find yourself just sitting at your desk all day long and then right into the evening and you kind of forget to stop sometimes. <laughs> so there's a bit of that that you need to kind of be mindful of. But um, I think really, really for us, it's about, you know, trust and flexibility. That And what we've seen certainly is that, you know, I've been so proud of our company. We, we focus on culture a lot. Um, that's kind of what we're about. But, you know, actually trusting people and providing flexibility it, it comes back around uh, and I think that's here to stay and actually it's a positive because it allows you to um, take time out to spend with your children or pick them up from school or and not have that expectation of being in the office from nine to five you know every day. Um, going back onto the um, one of the previous conversations in, in this uh, podcast it was about how do you how do you get that contact with people that you wouldn't then meet at you know, the, the kettle or the printer or, or what have you. And um, just a little thing that we started, someone had the idea. Uh, we're Veramed. We, we started this thing called the Vera Cupper. And, and what it is, is a, a random selector that selects two people at random um, from the company to stop and have a half an hour cup of tea with each other. And some of the best conversations I've had in the last 18 months have been because of that, because I haven't had the opportunity to visit the offices or even the other offices. And um, through that, it's allowed us to create this kind of informal web of connections within the company of people kind of getting to know each other that, where they wouldn't have the opportunity to otherwise. Mm -hmm. 
so that's probably some of the takeaways I think um, for for us. Yeah, I think that is that is something that I implemented as well to kind of connect people. I, I wouldn't say randomly because it's it's me doing the random side, but it's it's kind of connecting people in the teams together that haven't worked before together. So, which is kind of just making the the group wider, kind of replacing a coffee machine, and uh, not replacing, but at least kind of compensating for it a little bit. And that is, that is, uh, I think it's an excellent idea to just let people get the more the, the spirit of the office of the colleagues of the whole company, and and rather than working isolated and single, you know, on, on a home based desk and focusing yeah. on just getting the work done. So there's more than that. No, very good. Thanks so much, uh, Matt and Emma, um, and of course it's great being colleagues now. Um, See you later, I would say. <laughs> Thank you, Alexander. Thank you. We've got our, yeah, our youngest member uh, listening Hello. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's for, for sure the cutest listener ever, yeah, I would say. We'll, uh, we'll say goodbye before we leave further. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>